Well, good morning, Bethel Church, and happy Father's Day. We are delighted that you're here. We're thankful that you've chosen to prioritize this time, and I think we've learned over the last 18 months prioritizing being together as the church and as the people of God is a very, very important thing. So welcome to those of you joining us online right now. We're thankful that you've prioritized this time as well, as well as those of you maybe watching in the future on something of a rebroadcast, finding, I want to think about fatherhood today. As well as to those of you here in the Crown Point campus, it's a privilege for me to have the opportunity to grow with you today. My name is Stephen Ganchow, and I serve here as our pastor of counseling ministries. I've got a heavy hand in our uh, Bethel Recovery and Care Ministry as well. I'm one of the folks that's also uh, behind the online ministry that we have. So those of you online this morning, I miss hanging out with you, but I'm pleased at least that I get to talk directly to you this morning, and I'll look forward to seeing you again next week. And it's easy sometimes to forget there's a lot of things that happen here in the church, and sometimes it's like, I don't even know who I'm talking to about what it is that I'm talking about. So it's good as those of us that are not up here often, you kind of see, oh, hey, that's who they are. That's what they do. I kind of see them out there, and now you know me, and you can think, I can shake that guy's hand. I can fist bump that guy, right? It's good that we build as much community as possible. But in addition to those things, I'm one other thing, and that's the thing that I want to kind of drive from today. I'm a dad, and I'm blessed to be a dad. I have a tremendous uh, six-year-old daughter, and in two days, I'll have a four-year-old son, and I'm very excited for that. That's going to be a good day on Tuesday. But honestly, if I'm being just totally transparent with you, there was a time in my wife's and my life where we did not think that we would have any biological children. We had a number of years of infertility that are a part of our story, and that was a, a charted battle for us, but it led to a lot of spiritual growth. But to say that that wasn't a part of our story would be dishonest. So for those of you this morning that are thinking, boy, I really want to be a dad, I understand that. This is one of those areas in, in the world where it's typically associated as being more towards the moms and the ladies, when in reality, as one who wasn't sure he was going to be a biological dad at one point, there are some realities there that are well worth considering. Uh, but I'm, I'm pleased and thankful that God did bless us in such a way where my wife and I have these two amazing kiddos. I'm not just a dad of biological children, though. I'm a dad of spiritual children. Spiritual children are those that you and I have had a thumbprint on in the Lord or maybe even led to Jesus. I think of Mitch and Ruthie. I think of Riley. I think of these people that my wife and I have trained up in Jesus, been intimately involved and walked hand and hand with as they've grown in the Lord. And maybe some of you this morning are spiritual dads. There's kind of a third perspective, though, that I think is important as well. I am the son of adoption. So my dad is not my biological dad, and I grew up, I was at an age where I was aware of many of the nuances of having um, a dad leave and a dad come into the house and how that changes dynamics. And I learned a lot, quite frankly, from Larry, who is my dad. He's my adoptive dad. I learned a lot about what it meant to be a dad. He's the one that raised me. He's the one that patterned it for me. And I'm thankful for that. But I also recognize that there are some of you in the room who are adoptive dads, maybe single dads this morning as well. And there's a lot that goes into that. And my prayer this morning is that I have something in here for all of you. I have, I have organized this with that in mind. So with that, much in the same way on Mother's Day that we continued through our series on Romans, and we looked at 
uh, Timothy, and we looked at his mom and grandma and the ripples of faith. We're going to, ta- we're going to tackle fatherhood through our current series, Bottom Lines of the Bible. I'm, and I'm going to give you a bottom line on fatherhood here in just a couple of minutes. But I think it's worth noting, fatherhood is filled with deep complexities. We've highlighted this morning, we know some of you have lost dads this past year. We know some of you come from homes where there weren't good dads. And I submit to you this morning that my goal for you is to meet God as dad. I want you to know God as father this morning so that you find some comfort in a dad who will never leave you and will encourage you every step of the way. But fatherhood is nuanced in culture, isn't it? In fact, I think we would find, if we just kind of look at the secular world around us, that manhood, husbandry, biblical masculinity, really the value of fatherhood, are woefully misunderstood. They're diminished in value, if not culturally demonized. And that's really a tragedy, because God's fatherhood is of tremendous value and significance. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop here and I'm going to say this. This is not going to be a sermon where I simply make the point, dads need to lead better and husbands need to lead better. In fact, I think fatherhood demands much greater nuance than that, much in the same way that back in January I was privileged to be able to preach a sermon on the gospel-centered wife. I'm going to approach the subject of fatherhood with that same level of complexity and nuance to it. So I want to encourage you, don't tune out. Obviously, dad's in the room. This is for you. But young men, I have something in here for you. Ladies who are thinking about being married someday and wanting to have children, what I want to show you is the kind of man that you look for, the kind of husband that you want to find yourself attracted to, the kind of father you want to encourage a man to be. My goal is to have something in here for every single one of us. So with that, let me give you the bottom line. Let me give you the foundation of our time together today, and it's this. Fatherhood, whether biological, adoptive, or spiritual, is an expectation given to men demonstrated by the character of God. Fatherhood, whether biological, adoptive, or spiritual, like Paul to Timothy, Paul to Titus, Paul to Philemon, Paul to Onesimus, is an expectation given to men demonstrated by the character of God himself. All men are to be fathers. All men are to be fathers. And this is described to us in the Bible repeatedly. So if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. And it's okay if you've got a mobile device, grab that, bring it up too. I'd love for everybody to be looking at Matthew chapter 6. And as you work your way there, I'm going to describe for you what you're going to find on arrival. Matthew chapter 6 is part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's among the longest recorded teachings of Jesus in the entirety of the Bible in its consistency and density. Before chapter 6, in chapter 5, what we find is Jesus is thoroughly outlining what is expected of his listeners as they become followers of his teaching. Jesus talks a lot about righteous living. What does your conduct, what does your thought process look like? And then in chapter 6, Jesus kind of turns the conversation and his teaching another direction. Jesus transitions to teaching on the dangers of hypocrisy. He says righteous living doesn't say one thing and do something else. In chapter 6, verse 5, which is where we begin to see the topic we're going to engage with, Jesus teaches on prayer. 
and states that people should not pray like hypocrites. He was calling out those who were praying for public notoriety, calling for those who were praying for acclaim. There were even those that had been praying for a reward. And Jesus was, in fact, saying, you must not pray like them. That is not the way to pray. And then Jesus transitions here again. And if I was going to borrow from uh, the Disney Plus Star Wars TV show, The Mandalorian, what Jesus says is, this is the way you should pray. That's what we find in verse 9. He finds, we find Jesus saying, this is the way you should pray. So let's pick up then right there. It says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus continues then, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, you've heard me emphasize a number of words there because the language here historically was very significant. The fatherhood of God, uh, as Jesus used in this prayer, would have been taught by Jesus repeatedly, meaning Jesus taught in themes and he taught a similar version of the same thing over and over again. So this language that Jesus was using here would have been increasingly startling to a number of his listeners. The Gentile followers wouldn't have thought too much about it, but they would have been struck in that, hey, we've had maybe relationships with other deities, and I'm not quite sure that they ever allotted us fatherhood with the deity. So they, they would have been a little alarmed by that. They would have been, okay, they, this is new, this is different. But the Jews, the Jews, they would have noted something very, very different and very likely would have been surprised by it. Under the Old Testament law, which the Jews were expected to know, the Jews were expected to adhere to the law, the language of God's fatherhood was very different than the language that Jesus used here. In fact, most of the Old Testament writers, they used God's fatherhood as much more of an analogy. The language would have been a little bit different than that. I've got a couple of verses that I'll put up on the screen for you just so that you can kind of see what they are. Deuteronomy 32.6, Psalm 103.13, Isaiah 63.16, Malachi 2.10. These are places where they would have been familiar with God's fatherhood, and we're not going to read them, but I put them up there just so that you can take a look at them should you so desire. But the way fatherhood is used there was very different than the way Jesus used fatherhood here. Bible scholar and author Craig Keener, he gives us a little bit more historical context on the frame of reference that Jews would have had. He says this, in first century Jewish Palestine, children were powerless social dependents, and fathers were viewed as strong providers and examples on whom children would depend. So the language here is, is a little different as Jesus introduces it. Jesus uses a notable change. He was teaching his disciples that they had access here to an intimate relationship with God as Father. This wasn't an Old Testament analogy, and it certainly wouldn't have been what the Jews would have expected as characteristic, as characteristic of their childhood as powerless dependence on a father. This was language Jesus used of a very intimate relationship quality. 
This would have been very new to the ears of the Jewish hearers. Jesus repeatedly solidifies his own relationship with God as Father throughout the New Testament. That is literally a sermon in and of itself. But that's not what happens here. What Jesus is doing here is teaching his followers how to pray. He's extending God's fatherhood to all of his disciples and wants them to think in a new way. So when he prays, our Father, when he then teaches, your Heavenly Father, your Father, what he's doing there is affirming. It's three times in a very short succession, he affirms this new relationship quality of God's fatherhood. This would have been an entirely new paradigm for the Jewish hearers. He wasn't demonstrating, Jesus wasn't demonstrating how he should pray. What Jesus was saying is, all of you, followers, this is how you should pray. You should say, our Father. Jesus did not include himself in the our. That's why very shortly thereafter, he uses your twice. We find in this very famous prayer that it is predicated on what Jesus describes as a very close relationship between the followers of Jesus and his Father in heaven. This would have been massively significant, and the Jews would have become very, very aware. The Jews would have very likely seen God as much more of a distant Father in the sky. And if you look at their history, you would somewhat understand why. And I would submit to you that sometimes I think we are guilty in modernity of kind of treating God the Father much the same way. Much like the Jews of yesteryear, we get too caught up in thinking of God the Father as kind of this like grand deity. We're very, very comfortable talking about Jesus. We're very comfortable knowing, hey, the Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit walks with us. God the Father really almost seems untouchable at times. And what Jesus is doing here is changing the relationship dynamic. He was saying to his followers, God the Father wants a relationship with you. God's fatherhood involves intimate relationship with his followers. It involves an intimate relationship with those who want to follow him. Fatherhood is all about relationship. Good dads have relationships with their kids. And that begins to show us the pattern of fatherhood that I want to encourage us to consider today. This theme of intimate relationship with God as Father, it resonates throughout the entirety of the New Testament in a number of different spots. What I'm going to do is highlight just one for you for uh, the sake of expanding this discussion. Paul in Galatians 4 briefly discusses Christians as being heirs, H-E-I-R-S, heirs, offspring of Jesus. The language here is inherently paternal. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but if a son, but a son, and if a son, then an heir, an offspring through God. 
What Paul does here is a very helpful expansion for us. You've heard us use the word Abba a number of times this morning, and you've heard it again here. Abba is an Arabic term. It's a term, in fact, of endearment or affection. It was most often used by young children to affectionately talk about their fathers. In the original language, it would have been something uh, intimate. It would have been an endearing quality that the child would have called his father as. In our English language, it would be akin to more like daddy or papa. Those dads of you in the room right now, you probably know the difference between daddy and dad right? Daddy is like, hey, let's play a game. Daddy, let's go do a thing. Daddy, let's go on a walk. Daddy, let's go swimming. Daddy, let's do this, that, or the other thing. But then, when you're engaging in how we say uh, more parental instruction, dad, right? And that's the kind of thing that we need to note here. The language was intimate, and it was reflective of a close and tender relationship. God's fatherhood involves intimate relationship with his followers. Fatherhood, dads, fatherhood is all about relationship. So what does this mean for us? If God the Father examples relationship as one of the primary qualities between he and his followers, he and Christians, what is it that we should do with this? I think we start with this. Ideal biblical fatherhood, whether biological, adoptive, or spiritual, like Paul to Timothy, Titus, Philemon, or Onesimus, should be founded on an intimate, trusting, tender relationship. As much as possible, this should be pursued. This is the ideal. Dads, you have to fight for this. You have to fight for a tender, intimate relationship with your kids and the way God pursues a tender, intimate relationship with us. Ladies, this is the kind of fatherhood you want to encourage your husbands towards. This is the kind of fatherhood you want to encourage a future husband toward. These kinds of character qualities are what you want to pursue as you are thinking about doing life with someone for the rest of your life. At the foundation of fatherhood is relationship with your kids. God actively patterns this. We've seen that. Jesus and Paul actively teach it. So we need to then see how we can practically demonstrate it. And that's what I'd like to spend then the rest of the time that we have together on. I want to give you four practical ways that we can example the fatherhood of God. Four definitive ways that you can take and start immediately upon walking about those doors today or immediately that you can implement at home. Things that don't need to wait, you don't need any precursors for, things you can just go and do. What would God have us do? I would submit to you the first thing is this. Biblical fatherhood necessitates good priorities and involvement. It necessitates that you prioritize your time well and you are involved with your children. If we're going to use the character of Father God and look at how Jesus instructs us to think about him, we see from the intimacy of the language used that God desires to be involved with us and us with him. What that means is this is a two-way street. 
God's not just pouring into us, we are worshiping him. This is a two-way specific relationship. As fathers then, whether biological, adoptive, or spiritual, God needs, uh, God prefers and instructs that dads need to be intimately involved with their children, not passive. This is active engagement, intentional prioritizing of your time. In family and marriage counseling, of which I do a great deal of, I hear a number of things over and over and over again. One of them is, well, my husband or dad isn't uh, around a lot, or my husband and my dad works a lot. My husband or my dad, they're gone for this, that, or the other reason. And you know, sometimes those things are good. I, I understand, and I think we all understand, there are seasons of overtime, there are seasons of 96-hour shifts. There are seasons where the lawnmower is broken, the car is broken, there's a baseball tournament and a soccer tournament all simultaneously. It's like, how did we get to this place? Right? That happens. But as I have interacted with folks and talked with them about kind of the nitty-gritty details of life, it is unfortunate that I have found that too often it is not really a matter of it being a season it is much more a matter of we have poor priorities. Our involvement is in the sports and not in the children. Our involvement is in an activity and not the child. We're more concerned about the thing than the person. And that can be applied in a host of different ways. We see this in the Bible too. Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and together they had two sons. And in Genesis 25, 28, it gives us a great account of poor priorities and, I'll say, misguided involvement on the part of Rebekah and Isaac. What we find is that Isaac loved and prioritized one of his sons more, Esau, and Rebekah prioritized the other son, Jacob. And what that led to was a skewed involvement towards both of them that resulted in generations of catastrophic conflict. And I say generations for a reason. We know, if you look at the Bible, that uh, Isaac, or excuse me, that Esau and Jacob, they, they reconciled. And then that, that's, that's a good thing. We praise God for that. But we find that, unfortunately, the poor priorities and the misinvolvement, the favoritism, kind of leaked its way into Jacob's thinking. Jacob went on to have 12 sons. We know that he prioritized, favored, and had specific involvement with Joseph and Benjamin, Joseph being the one with the multicolored coat who went on to be the second in command of all of Egypt, and then his brother Benjamin, over that of his ten brothers. And that resulted in some fairly catastrophic things. They threw him in a pit, they threw Joseph in a pit, sold him into slavery, all kinds of not awesome things. I think we can agree on that, right? all because of poor involvement and poor investment and complete mismanagement of one's priorities. Generations of catastrophic breakdown. This lasted so long that all these brothers, these 12 brothers, were well into adulthood, established in middle life. Joseph is sitting on the second throne of Egypt, and then Jacob, their dad, he passes away. And the brothers, they start to worry. It's been a long time, and things have been okay for a while, but they start to worry. Now that dad's gone... Remember how we threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery? I wonder if we're going to suffer for that now. And they went back to Joseph again. Think about this. These brothers, they lived 
with that fear for decades. All because of poor priorities, mismanagement of involvement and time. Friends, this is not the way. We must prioritize our children appropriately. Fathers, you need to prioritize each member of your household, your wife first, and then your children immediately thereafter. Outside of your personal relationship with God, your wife and children need the primary amount of investment in your life. Not your buddies, not your coworkers, not even yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself starts at home with your family. They require your time and investment. That is what God patterns for us. That is what Jesus taught that God demonstrated in his fatherhood. God the Father is not too busy, is not uninvolved, is not disengaged. Psalm 46, in fact, says he is very present, not just in times of help or in need, but always. God is very present. Spiritual dads, I have a word for you in the room as well, and for those of you online. I want you to think about the character of Paul. Paul had a number of spiritual kids. I've referenced them to you a few times this morning. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1-2, Paul refers here to Timothy as his true child in faith. He refers to Titus as his true child in common faith. In Philemon 1.10, Paul refers to Onesimus as his child in faith in the gospel. And if you understand the narrative of Philemon in verses 11 and 19 of chapter 1, you see that Paul is saying, and Philemon, I led you to the Lord as well. Paul was his spiritual dad in the gospel. My point in highlighting this is these four guys had a special involvement in the life of Paul. We know that Paul traveled all over the place. Paul planted churches. He led sweeping numbers of people to the Lord almost Certainly. But we see from Paul's own writing by his own hand that he prioritized these four guys and a handful of others. He was involved in their lives on an intimate and personal level. Spiritual dads, it's okay to have a lot of friends. That's good. But make sure that you are pouring into the spiritual kids that you are raising up in the Lord. Number two. Biblical fatherhood engages in loving um, celebration and loving correction. This is really a sequel to the previous point, but it warrants, I think, a couple of specific applications on its own. Reason being, in much of the counseling that I do, dads typically kind of fall into two categories. They fall kind of on the authoritative, corrective side or they fall a little bit more on the fun dad or disengaged side. And I would kind of call those two shores or riverbanks on the rushing river of fatherhood. And where we need to be as dads, we need to be right in the middle. We need to have uh, correction, but we need to have fun too. There are times where we need to step away, but then there are times where we need to be right in the trenches with our kids. And we find that the Bible talks about this at great length as well. I'm going to give you one quick example of celebration. I'll use one of the people that Paul uh, has raised up in the Lord. Listen to what Paul says to Philemon in chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. He says, 
I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I derive much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is significant because at the time that Paul wrote this, he was in prison in Rome. So what Paul is saying is, all the way from Rome, I hear about all the amazing stuff that Philemon's church is doing. Paul celebrates with his spiritual son. And then we know from the rest of Philemon that he goes on to, I'll say, lovingly encourage him. The Bible talks about that a little bit elsewhere as well. In Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11, we're reminded that fathers should be involved in loving correction. Because correction is in and of itself an act of love. And it prevents children, in so much as it depends on us, from wandering down the path of destruction. Many of the Proverbs talk about this same thing. But again, it necessitates involvement. It necessitates investment. It necessitates prioritizing your children. So that you have the credibility to correct them. And they believe you when you celebrate, the last thing we want is to be a hypocrite. The last thing we want as dads is for our children to look at us and see, dad does not mean that. That will be catastrophic to your children. So we need to have credibility in order to celebrate and correct. I think about this past Tuesday. I, speaking of priorities, one of the things that I've done to uh, do so, practice, quite frankly, some of what I preach, is I've reorganized my morning schedule in order to be at my children's swim lessons. It's a good thing. So at 8 a.m., we are at swim lessons Monday through Friday. And it's been a neat thing for me to um, watch my children kind of grow in their ability to do this. And if you follow me on Instagram or on Facebook, uh, we're friends on Facebook, you'll see I've been posting in my stories when my kids kind of do things well, when they learn a new skill or when they excel at it, and occasionally when it's not going well. You're a parent, you gotta. This past Tuesday, uh, I had the opportunity to do both of these things. So you'll see if you watch these videos that when the kids do something new, we're like, yeah, Ellie, go, go, Grayson, go. We're like, you know, we're cheering them, we're cheering them, we're cheering them. Anna and I have talked a number of times, okay, we need to have positive regard. We need to build them up. We need to know that what they're doing is a good thing because they're a little nervous about the swim lessons thing. They're, they're, the, the, quite frankly, it's new. So we've been doing a lot of affirmation. But on Tuesday, a day that shall live in infamy, the underwater experience came. And when Ellie's teacher came up to her and said, okay, Ellie, it's time to go underwater. I'm gonna, I'm gonna demonstrate this for you. Her back was turned to us, and this is what we saw. <laughs> it just crumpled, tears immediately streaming. The teacher looks up at me, I'm out of the bleacher, and we've, we've developed enough, I know some of you teachers in the room are like, what do you mean you're out of the bleacher? Ah, don't worry about it. We developed a rapport with the teacher. I got right down by Ellie. We talked, and it gave me the opportunity right there after, after celebration, 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 to say, Ellie, you have to listen to your teacher. She's not asking you to do anything wrong. And we talked about that for a minute or so. And we decided that day 
to show her grace. She put her face in the water. That was great. And honestly, it took two more days of celebration and encouragement and loving correction. And on Thursday, she went underwater. Or it was a Friday. One of those, she went underwater, and that's the important thing. <laughs> she went underwater. But it took both. And quite frankly, friends, it took me changing things. It took me making strategic changes in my world to be present every single morning and involved in that process. And men, I submit to you, this is a thing you need to consider. You need to find a way to prioritize your children as much as you possibly can. This is what they need from you. This is what they need from you. Number three. Biblical fatherhood involve, it, biblical fatherhood knows, lives, and teaches godly values. And we're going we're gonna to address this as one thing. Biblical fatherhood knows, lives, and teaches godly values. I counted 45 times in the Proverbs where parental instruction and patterning is given. Let me just give you a few here very briefly. In Proverbs 1.8, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So pay attention. Listen to me. Don't push our instruction away. Pay attention. In Proverbs 4.1, it says, Hear, O son, your father's instruction, Excuse me. Hear, O sons, your father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Don't just listen, but see. Be attentive. Be watching. This implies firsthand patterning by the father that the child here, the son, can see. Meaning, watch what I am doing so that you too can do the thing that I am doing. Let's go up to Proverbs 23, 26. It says, my son, give me your heart. Give me your desires. Think the way that I do. Let your eyes be attentive to my ways. Again, what that implies here is not just observation, not just attentiveness, but now direct patterning. Same thing with this past week. We got our kids' bikes down. They need, we needed to air up the tires, and we're getting ready to take the training wheels off one of the kids' bikes. So we got down, and I started, I got a wrench out, and I was tightening one of the training wheels. And it was a good moment. I said, hey, Ellie, Grayson, come over here. So I showed them. I showed them the wrench. I put it on the bolt, and I tightened it. Did you see that? Yes. Okay. I did it again. And I say, okay, your turn. And Ellie tightened it. Grayson, he was, hmm, I'm out. But it's fine. He's like almost four. But Ellie, she tightened it a couple of times. Hey, Ellie, come here. See what I am doing. Give it a shot. How do we do that biblically? How do we know, live, and teach God's wisdom to our families? Dads, I'm going to give you a pro tip. Here's, here's your pro tip for the day. If you want to know, live, and teach biblical values, know the gospel, know the power of God unto salvation, that Jesus died on the cross for your and your kids' sins, and he rose again so that we can have eternity with Jesus forever. Know the gospel and know the Proverbs. There's much more in the Bible we need to know, but if you want to know and live and teach biblical truth in a user-friendly way, for the purposes of parenting, know the gospel and know the Proverbs. Spiritual dads, 
dads-to-be, 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul, again, who had no physical children that we are aware of, Paul wrote to Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach also. What Paul was literally saying here was, hey, Timothy, I trained you. I trained you so that you could go and train other men to teach. So, guess what? They could go and train other men to teach. Spiritual dads, you need to know, live, and teach godly values. Finally, biblical fatherhood demonstrates forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the single most significant things that fathers and parents, quite frankly, can example to their children. God the Father, through Jesus, has offered us forgiveness for our sins. And this is an amazing reality. Yet we know from Romans 3.23 that sin still exists within us and we will battle sin until we reach glory, until we reach the foot of the throne. And yet despite the fact that we battle, despite the fact that sin discourages us, despite the fact that sin tries to push us back and stop us from worshiping and pursuing righteousness, God always welcomes us back when we stumble. God always welcomes us back. Remember what happened in Luke 15, 11 through 32. This is the story of the prodigal son. A son who had been taught, if not knew better, had been given a portion of his inheritance to that point and went and made an absolute ruin of his life. And when he had lost everything, came back to his dad, and his dad didn't even wait for him to get to the house. What did he do? He ran to him. 1 John 1.9 says, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. As fathers, biological, adoptive, spiritual, demonstrating the forgiveness of sins is among the most significant and important things you can do because you are literally showing the gospel to your kids. Now, here's the thing. There may be correction. There may be discipline. There may be consequences for sin and trust that has to get rebuilt. But the relationship. Remember, biblical fatherhood is founded on relationship. The relationship between you and your children should always be restored in so much as it depends on you. Always pursue forgiveness and restoration as God graciously restores us. Dads, demonstrate the forgiveness that you have experienced from Jesus. This is just you exampling point number three and showing it to your children so that they do it for their children. This is among one of the most dynamic ways that you can be like your heavenly Father. There's a lot of other things that could be said, but I think these four things are significant. Biblical fatherhood necessitates good priorities and involvement. It engages in loving celebration and loving correction. It knows, lives, and teaches godly values, and it demonstrates forgiveness. And while the Bible does have a plethora of other things that could be said, I think if you start by doing these four things, all of those other things will naturally fall into place. So my encouragement to you men 
Dads of all kinds, pursue these things. So what I want to do as we close then is this. I want to pray for the fathers in the room. Dads, we're going to take a minute, and I'm going to give you a minute. And Quite frankly, I want you to pray for yourselves. I want you to pray that God gives you the willingness to do these things, cultivates within you the desire to do these things. Moms, kids, pray for your dad. Pray for your husband. They have bad days too. Pray that they have this Father God character. And I would submit to you that this could be a turning point that revolutionizes many homes. So let's take a minute now and pray.